Would you bow in prayer with me this time? Father, would you prepare our hearts today to accept your word? Please silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. If you're using a Pew Bible, that's page 852. 852. In 1380, a man by the name of John Huss was born. John Huss became a Czech priest who lived until 1415. That was some 100 years before Luther and Calvin would arrive on the scene and the beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. John Huss, though, was considered an early Christian reformer. He was influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe, who had, and I quote, so kindled the light of Reformation that it began to illumine the dark corners of ignorance. His doctrines spread and were well received by great numbers of people, but none so particular as John Huss and his zeal um, and and his zealous friend and fellow martyr, Jerome of Prague. Uh, John Huss, you may may know as a martyr, and a martyr he was. He, like John Wycliffe, stood opposed to the papacy, or that is, the Pope. Um, He did that in his teaching and in his writing, which put him in direct conflict with the Catholic Church at the time. In 1414, he was summoned to attend a council in Germany, where he believed that he would have the opportunity to defend himself before the the church fathers. Upon arrival, he was arrested and imprisoned. From there, he was brought to trial and did have an opportunity to speak. There, his testimony uh, against the, the articles that were brought against him only provoked his adversaries. Again, quoting here from a description of John Huss, he was burned at the stake for heresy against the doctrines of the Catholic Church, particularly those, uh, particularly related to those on ecclesiology, that's the theology of the church, and the Eucharist, which is communion, and other theological topics. As the bundle of sticks were piled to his neck, he was asked one final time to recant in order to save his life. John Huss said, quote, No, I never preached any doctrine of any evil tendency, and what I taught with my lips, I now see with my blood. As the flames were applied, it is said that Huss sang a hymn with so loud and cheerful a voice that he was heard through all the crackling of the combustions and the noise of the multitude. At length, his voice was interrupted by the severity of flames, which soon closed his existence. Stories like these and other martyrs are well documented. These men and women came to know Christ 
and their lives were completely and absolutely changed. Their lives were changed as they sought to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, and become like him in his death, Philippians 3.10. Suffering and death are exactly what the writer of the Gospel of Mark, which who is Mark, describes here in chapter 15 of his Gospel. As we come to our passage this morning, it's now Good Friday, as we would refer to it. Friday morning, but the last day that Jesus would be alive on earth. Jesus has already been arrested at this point. He has stood trial before Annas and the other high priest, Caiaphas. After being questioned by the high priest, Caiaphas, Jesus stated plainly, as we looked at last week, that he was indeed the Messiah, that he was indeed the Son of the Blessed or the Son of God. And upon that statement, the religious leaders gathered to make their plans. What follows in chapter 15 are several instances of Jesus being rejected by men as he endured suffering, divinely appointed suffering for our sin. Now, the first instance of rejection we can see as Jesus is again before or still before the council. Look at it in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. At this point, the council now consulted and made plans against Jesus. We want to remind ourselves that their plans were predetermined. Their plans were from the get-go for Jesus to, to die, for Jesus to be eliminated and they would do that by any means necessary. Jesus was a threat to them. He was a threat to their power. Uh, he was not the Messiah that they had expected. They wanted a military uh, or a political Messiah that would come free them from Rome. And here comes Jesus, this humble man from, from a, a no-name place. He wasn't what they were, were expecting or what they wanted. And Jesus had this knack of exposing in the heart of the religious leaders what was true. Uh, theologian Kent Hughes tells a story of a missionary in Africa who, who, was, who uh, hung a mirror on a tree. And it happened to be that, that the, the African chief of that area visited one day. And I'll, I'll quote him the rest of the way. Uh, this chief looked into the mirror and saw her reflection complete with terrifying paint and threatening features. She gazed at her own frightening countenance and start, started back in horror, exclaiming, who is that horrible person inside the tree? Oh, said the missionary, it's not in the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. The African would not believe it until she held the mirror in her hand. She said, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? Oh, the missionary said, I don't, I don't want to sell it. But the woman begged until he capitulated, thinking it might be best to sell it to avoid trouble. So he named the price and she took the mirror and exclaimed, I will never have that making faces at me again. And she threw it down and broke it into pieces. Kent Hughes continues, this is precisely what the religious establishment did to Jesus. 
they would dash this mirror of their souls. So they nailed him to the cross only to find that this magnifies the reflection. It was as if Jesus was, was a mirror or holding up a mirror to these religious people for them to see exactly who they are, exactly what their heart looks like. And so it is with Jesus, isn't it? And so it is with his word. We may wonder sometimes, why do people who don't love Jesus care? Why do they care about what the Bible says? Why do they care if, if you believe the Bible? Why, why does that matter to them at all? It's because the Bible, the word of God is powerful. It's living, it's active, it's revealing, it's exposing us for who we are. It's exposing our sin, our spiritual deadness, our unrighteousness. And no one wants to be exposed. No one wants to, to be shown for who they really are. No one likes to be told that they are wrong. And yet it's this very exposure, isn't it? It's, it's this very revealing that brings the light in. In order that we may see, in order that we may repent and believe. The light is necessary. Without it, we stay in the darkness. But with the light comes exposure. With the light comes realization of our sin. But oh, that the light of God's word would continue to shine. Shine in, in our church. Shine in our hearts. Shine in our community. Shine in our country and across the globe that, that sins may be repented of and that Christ alone may be worshiped. Well, this council was determined to kill Jesus, and they were doing it for political gain. They were doing it for power. And so they sent him to Pilate. You see, the, the, the religious council did not have the authority to convict a capital crime. Their, their religious accusations had no legal authority in Rome, for, for the Roman government. So only Rome could execute. Specifically, only the, the Roman governor of Judea had that power. His name is Pontius Pilate, which leads us to our second instance of rejection in verses two and following, as we see Jesus brought to Pilate and being accused. Luke chapter 23, verse two says this, and they began accusing him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, this was yet again another false testimony, as Jesus did not do the things that they said that he did, but the council had a problem. They had an accusation against Jesus that did not equate to capital punishment. It didn't equate to crucifixion. Rome didn't care about their religious problems. Rome didn't care if, if, if they had a religious disagreement between one another. That wasn't the, Rome's problem. That wasn't, that wasn't something they were concerned about. Blasphemy to them was not the punishment that they would crucify him for. So the religious leaders needed an accusation that would offend the Roman government. And what would be that accusation? That he's opposing Caesar. That he's trying to usurp Caesar. That he wants to be king and take over, for, over the, the throne. And so, that's the accusation they give. But Pilate, we see, isn't even convinced. Look at verse 2 of Mark chapter 15. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And he answered him, you have said so. That's kind of a weird way to answer that, isn't it? He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He says, you said it. <laughs> you said it. So in effect, he's saying, yes, I am. <clears throat> but at this point in, in the book of Luke, Pilate admits, I find no guilt with this man. After this first question from Pilate, he says, I, I don't find guilt worthy of death here. I, I, don't, I don't know which, why he's here, but the council wouldn't let it go. Follow along in verse 3 and 4 um, and 5 of Mark 15. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Now we're, now we're having more accusation, ongoing accusation. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Right? So, so here these chief priests come. They're bringing charges. They're continually bringing charges. Again, we see that uh, they kept on doing this. And Jesus, uh, in order to hopefully convince Pilate that Jesus deserved death. That, that's the goal here. Though the charges kept coming, Jesus once again remained silent. We saw this back in chapter 14 when Jesus would not justify or legitimize the false accusations against him. Jesus wasn't all up in a huff because uh, there, were, there were false things being said about him. And to this, Pilate marvels. He marvels at this one that Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says, like a, like a sheep is silent before its uh, shear, so Jesus so this suffering servant would be silent as well. He was amazed. Imagine the things that Pilate saw. Imagine the people that came before Pilate and, and, and pled for, for uh, uh, to be, to be uh, not crucified, right? Pled for their, their innocence, or even if they were not, pled that they, they would not continue on with the punishment. But here Jesus, with repeated accusations of crimes, crimes that he did not commit, enduring the hostility of these men, did not defend himself. Like, this is marvelous, right? It is astonishing. It is, it is, it is um, something to behold then as it would be even now. Jesus' self-control was out of the ordinary, and it astonished, rightly, it astonished Pilate. This is what could be called patient suffering. Uh, most of us, if we're honest, uh, we don't do patience well, and we don't do suffering well. So patient suffering is, uh, is really difficult, right? That, that's not something that we, uh, we as Americans uh, do very well, but it's something we, we must learn. J.C. Ryle writes, nothing in the Christian character glorifies God so much as patient suffering. Why is that? It's because this is part of the Christian life. Right? If you live long enough as a Christian, you, you recognize that there is a cost to following Jesus, that if we actually follow Jesus, there will be a cost to it. It's a real part of the real Christian life. Well, even after finding no guilt in Jesus, Pilate attempted to shift responsibility. And we find this not here in Mark, but what we find is that, that um, Pilate recognizes that Jesus is from Galilee. And there's somebody else that has jurisdiction over Galileans, and that's Herod. And so he says, I'm going to send you to Herod. You're kind of Herod's responsibility, so I'm going to pass the buck to Herod and let, let, let Herod deal with this. Well, Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 16, uh, tell us about that trial. And in short, it's this. Herod says, I, I, don't, I don't know why he's here. 
he hasn't done anything worthy of this, go, go back to Pilate. Go back to the, the Roman official who is in charge here. The proverbial hot potato, we might say, was placed back in Pilate's lap. From Pilate to Herod, now back to Pilate, Jesus came. Pilate then tried another strategy. Pick it up in verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among them, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in, uh, in the insurrection was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate do, to, to do as he usually did for them. Verse 9, and he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So we learned that apparently Pilate had a custom that at this time, that's the, the, the Passover or the feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he would release a prisoner. And so Pilate came up with an idea, well, we have this, we have this, this thing where I, I release somebody. So let me go to the crowd and ask them. Because apparently the religious leaders, they're, they're, they don't really care about justice here. They, they, they care about envy. They're envious of this guy. So I'm going to go to the crowd and see if um, reasonable you know, heads can prevail here. And I'm going to ask them what, what, what they want. But before we, we're even given that answer, again, in the, the totality of the, the, uh, the narrative, we can look at Matthew chapter 27. And a new character is in, in interjected into the narrative. And it's Pilate's wife. And before Pilate says anything about, uh, or the crowd answers, the, Pilate's wife comes to him and tells him in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, while he was sitting, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate knows he's, he's innocent, right? He, we, that, that much has been uh, determined. Uh, Pilate knows that, that Herod's not going to do his dirty work for him. Now Pilate has received a warning from his, his own wife that he ought not to get involved in this. So what would Pilate do? Now, some ladies in the room today might be thinking, see, if he would have just listened to his wife, <laughs> right? There's biblical evidence that you should just listen to your wife. Well, you're not wrong on this account, he should have listened to his wife. He shouldn't have gotten involved in the way he did. Sadly, we know that that is not what Pilate did. Look at verse 11. And the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released, have, to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So the question comes to the crowd. And in the crowd are the chief priests, the religious people, and they are stirring up the crowd. They are instigating the crowd to, to cry out for Barabbas not Jesus to be released. Mark gives us some description here of Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas was a murderer uh, who was, was guilty of murder in, a, in an insurrection or in a rebellion against Rome. John calls him a robber in John chapter 18, verse 40. What we come to learn basically is this, that this was not a good man. Right? Barabbas was not a good guy. Barabbas was not imprisoned in an unjust way. Uh, Barabbas was not worthy of any grace or mercy that would be being received here if Pilate were to release him. Barnabas, uh, Barabbas was a political activist right, in the insurrection, this rebellion. He's, he's a political uh, activist here. He's, he's a rebel. He's a zealot. 
And this, this patriotism uh, appealed to, to the Jews, right? Because they didn't like Rome either. And so there, there could be some sensitivity here that the Jews may have had towards Barabbas um, and even willing to accept him back into society. We can suppose a bit of frustration for Pilate. Look at verse, beginning of verse 12. And Pilate said again to them, what shall I do with the man you call, you call, see that? You call the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. Right? Here, Pilate, and, and listen, Pilate was no friend of the Jews. Uh, Pilate was known to be a cruel man. He is shocked by this. This, this doesn't even seem right to Pilate. If this doesn't seem right to Pilate, we have a problem, right? This doesn't even seem right to him. He's shocked by their response. The, the response was to crucify him. And he says, for what? And they don't, even, they don't even answer. They just continue the chant of crucify him. So let's get it straight. The crowd was demanding that an innocent man be crucified. Crucified means to be hung on a tree. That's what that word means, hung on a tree while a guilty man was set free to go back into their, their own community. Right? That's, what we're, that's, that's what we're saying here. At an at a, at a elementary level, right? at a base level, this is madness. This doesn't make any sense at all, why, why someone would, would want this kind of exchange. We can remember back to chapter 11, which was only days earlier than this, Sunday. This is Friday in the text. It was Sunday. And as Jesus enters the city, they're shouting, Hosanna. Now, there's some question about whether or not these were actually the same group of people. Some people don't believe that it's the same people who shouted Hosanna were actually shouting crucify. But you might imagine there were some that were the same. By Friday, they're, they're crying out, crucify him. The crowd wanted his, his death. It's unbelievable, really. And as unjust as it is, on a deeper level, it's a vivid picture of this idea of substitution or a term that we use, and stick with me, substitutionary atonement. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus and his death was a substitute. His atonement was a substitute that he took our place. He stood condemned in our place he was a substitute for us. He took what we deserved. He took our sin. That's substitutionary atonement. What he did, he did so that we wouldn't have to. What we deserved, he took on. And this is what we see here with Barabbas in Jesus, isn't it? That here Barabbas is the guilty one. Here Barabbas is the one who's worthy or, or, or worthy of death because of his crimes. And yet Jesus is the one who is substituted for him. The name Barabbas means, listen to this, son of the father. If you split the word up, Bar-Abbas, Abba. We've heard that word before, haven't we, in the Bible? Abba, meaning father. Son of the father. This Barabbas, the son of the father, was freed, while Jesus, the, the, the true son of the father, was crucified. We can rightly acknowledge the evil of Barabbas, 
in the foolishness of his release, and yet it so clearly captures for us what Jesus has done. Right? Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, holy and without blame, stood in our place. We who are sinners, we who are enemies of God, we who took, he took on himself our penalty, that, that, that we might receive the blessing of his righteousness. Don't, don't miss it today. We are Barabbas here. We are the guilty that have been set free. We are the ones who deserved death. We are unworthy, and yet that's exactly what grace is for, isn't it? Grace is for the unworthy. Grace is for the undeserving. If we deserved it, guess what it wouldn't be? Grace. That's what grace is. So grace extended can only be extended to unworthy people. It can't be extended to worthy people, or else it's not grace anymore. And here we see it, don't we? One man guilty is released while the innocent bears the penalty. Well, back to our story. Once Pilate had the power to stop this whole thing, right? Once again, he has the power to stop this whole thing. The responsibility, listen, the responsibility is in Pilate's hands. He is responsible for what happens. Now, we might say, well, God's sovereign over all the events. Yes and amen. But Pilate was responsible. Pilate even knew what was right. But we all know that knowing the truth, even having the power to do what is right, does not ensure that right will be done. What, power, what, what, what Pilate had in power, he lacked in character. Right? He had all the power, but he had none of the character. So to remind us to pray for those who have power. The Bible actually invites us, commands us to pray for kings, those in leadership. We ought to pray that their power would not exceed their character or that their character would rise to the level of their power. A good prayer these days, yes? All days, by the way, not just these days. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So what happens? Here Pilate has, it's, the power is in his hands. It's not in the Jewish people's hands. It's not in the religious people's hands. It's in Pilate's hands. Pilate could have stopped it. He could have stopped it. And what did Pilate do? He caved. He caved. Though, though he had yeah, figuratively, or literally, he had washed his hands, Matthew tells us, of, of this, in saying that this is on them, right? This sin is on you. you. You actually can't wash your hands of it, Pilate, because it's still your responsibility. You're still the one who made the call. And why did he make the call, verse 15? Wishing <clears throat> to satisfy the crowd. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, he went along with their plans. You can imagine that the pressure mounting on Pilate, can't you? Can't you imagine that the, we don't know how many people a crowd is here. You can imagine it's, it's a fair amount of people. And there's this pressure mounting that, that he go along with this. That if it's true that this guy is trying to oppose Caesar, does Pilate want to be on the wrong side of that? Does Pilate want to be defending a guy who's opposing Caesar? That's going to get Pilate into some trouble. The pressure is mounting. And yet Pilate was far more interested in their approval. 
He was far more interested in trying to prevent a, a possible riot. He was far more interested in keeping his job than he was in doing what is right. What is the right thing? To execute justice, not execute the innocent. This was his responsibility. And here's just a little historical note. History tells us that later, Pilate was removed from his office. And things got so bad for Pilate that Pilate killed himself. What do we learn? Appeasing the crowd only works for a moment. Wishing to satisfy the crowd only works for a moment. There's a, a real temptation to satisfy the crowd today, isn't it? It's a real temptation. Maybe you're not a governor today. Maybe you're thankful for that. Maybe you're not a, a leader. Maybe you don't hold uh, any, any sense of, of power, you don't think. But even still, you and I do ha- hold responsibility to do what is right, even if unpopular. Pilate was motivated by social pressure. And we see a lot of social pressure today. As the moral revolution continues to morally bankrupt our society, we see the effects of this kind of pressure, not just in the world, but in the church. We see professing Christians caving to secular ideas. But after all, we would say, who wants to be on the wrong side of history, right? Well, that would depend, doesn't it? That would depend on on, on what history we are actually talking about. It would depend on who is determining what is the right and the wrong side of it. You do know that a hot two seconds ago, what is referred to as traditional views on sexuality and on marriage were held and supported by nearly all public leaders, right? You do remember that. That wasn't that long ago. It's only since the the momentum and attention uh, has has moved so heavily towards progressivism and permissiveness that our leaders have changed their views as well. So how about this? How about we care less about the so-called wrong side of history and rather devote ourselves to what is actually right? How about that? How about we stop worrying about what the world thinks of, of truth? How about we stop trying to make the truth sound better to people who hate God anyways? That doesn't mean we have to be unloving about it. It just means we're not going to capitulate on it. It just means that this is what God has said, and therefore we're going to hold to it. But then these days we might say, well, what is truth? You hold the truth, well, what is truth? Pilate asked the same question, by the way. The other gospel writer in John chapter 18 Pilate asked that very question of Jesus. What is truth? Well, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus answers that question. In John 17, 17, my word is truth. In John 14, 16, Jesus says, I am the truth. John 18, verse 37, the the words right before Pilate asks this very question, Jesus says this, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Whoa. Whoa. How about that? How about that for some objective way of determining who's in? Who's in line with Jesus? Who's in line with Jesus? Those who listen to his voice. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. No matter the pressure, we must walk in truth and may God help us.
Well, the crowd had went along with the chief priests. Right? We, we've seen that already. And they serve as a, the third instance of rejection in our passage. The crowd was instigated. We clearly saw that by the, the chief priests. But that does not negate their responsibility. We could say, well, the chief priests were, were getting them egged on. It's, it's, it's those guys that were really cheering for this thing. But listen, the crowd had, had their own will here too, right? They had agency. They could have not went along with it. They could have said, actually, no, we're not going to ask for a, a convicted criminal to be released and an innocent man be killed. They had choice. They had agency. And with their choice, they rejected Jesus. There is a tidal wave of pressure of instigating, of instigation to reject Jesus in the world. A call from the so-called progressive Christians to bring the Bible up to date. That's a rejection of Jesus. A call to to bring into line these words into a contemporary age are are only increasing. There is and will be a a, a temptation to go along, to get along. Some of us might feel that even now. That the, the, the pressure is, is pushing, right? And if we just go along to get along, right? we don't burn too many bridges, we don't want to offend anybody, so we'll just go along to get along. Well, that'll work if our interests lie in comfort, approval, and acceptance. Right? That'll work, that'll be fine. But... If our commitment is actually to Jesus and his word, then with John Huss, we must say no. No. We won't recant. We won't say that what Jesus said is not true. We'll stand up. We'll tell the truth. Though religious establishments, though professing Christians, though political leaders and the culture at large may move on They move on from what God has said. We must not. These rejections are happening around us and we must stand firm. Now, this is not a sky is falling moment. That's not what I'm doing here. This isn't press the alarm. Uh, This is not fear mongering. This is not a culture war. This is just saying the movement towards uh, or away from Christ and his word has been, has been, and is occurring. This isn't, this isn't a 2022 problem, right? Uh, the moving on from God's word started in the garden, if you remember. God said something and Adam and Eve moved on from it. The move east of Eden, we could say, started then. This is not new, but it is continual. It is being more and more accepted in the places where we live today. It is not, it is not a, a call to say the sky is falling, but it is a call to stand firm. It is a call to die to ourselves and to walk in the newness of life in Christ. It is a call to discipleship. It is a call to follow Jesus. <clears throat> I was reading this week Dijek Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he says this familiar line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. A little bit later, he says, only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ." The reason we capitulate to the world, the reason that we move, the reason that that we give up our our values or our beliefs, 
the reason we do that, the reason that we're led into sin and denial, the reason that, that our stories are not like many of the, the stories of the martyrs that we read is because we have not yet died to ourselves. Jesus says that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and then follow him. Again, Bonhoeffer writes this, self-denial is never a series of isolated acts of mortification, that's killing our sin, or aestheticism, that means abstaining from something. It is not suicide, for there's an element of self-will even in that. He writes this, to deny ourselves is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. These are powerful words. To deny yourself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. That's why the martyrs could say, I'm not gonna recant. I'm not worried about myself. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, I don't count my life precious to myself. I'm not here for me. I'm not here to maintain my life. I'm not here to maintain my little kingdom. I'm not here for safety. One of our missionaries in Romania, Andrew and Leah Postma, wrote in a letter, some, some have asked about our safety during this time. They said, we're fine, but we did not come here to be safe. We came here to serve the Lord. What a beautiful testimony of dying to yourself, of being willing to say, if this costs my life, it costs my life. But my life is, is more, more precious, not more precious to me. My life lived for, for Christ, in fact, is. So have you come to Christ first, and have you died to Christ? That's not a simple answer either. Well, we know that Pilate clearly had not died to himself. And at the end of verse 14, we see a last attempt for Pilate to pacify the crowd before having Jesus crucified. And we see this attempt by having him scourged. And the thought here is that the Pilate had him beat. And scourging will we'll spare you the, the full description of such a thing. But let's just say this. A lot of people didn't make it through the scourging. Pilate thought, well, if, if I have a beat, maybe they won't crucify him. Well, that didn't work. From here, Jesus is taken away by the Roman soldiers. And we see our final instance of rejection from these very soldiers. Look at verse 16. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they had called together the whole battalion. The whole battalion. You know how many the whole battalion is? 600 men. Here's Jesus. Never resisted arrests. Yelled at his disciple for, for pulling out the sword. Healed the guy that he hurt. Stood before the councils. Nobody defended him. He didn't defend himself. And yet he's taken to Rome and 600 men have to come out for him. What's happening here? He's being treated as a rebel. He's being treated as he was accused. As someone who was in rebellion against Rome. And yet here, what they do in jest, what they do sarcastically, as we'll read in the next verses, was actually fulfillment of Scripture. Here, here what they did to Jesus in verses 17 and following. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, 
king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. That striking and the spitting was, they kept on doing it. It wasn't a one-off. It's a continuous action. Verse 20. When, he had, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Here they attempt to make a mockery of Jesus before leading him out to crucify him. And yet this suffering was predicted. The prophets predicted this suffering. This was what was required. This was what was required of Jesus for him to suffer and to die. And though Jesus would, in fact, die, that would not be the end of the story, no matter how bad the, 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 the council wished for it to be so. Though the men would kill him, Jesus was still sovereign over all. We must not forget what Jesus has done. I know this story. I've heard it a few times, right? You must not forget what Jesus has done. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. J.C. Ryle again says that Jesus was condemned so that we could be freed. Until you recognize that you're in bondage, you don't know that you need to be freed. But Jesus was condemned so that you could be freed. And apart from Christ, guess what? We're all in bondage. In bondage to sin. And Christ was condemned so that we could be freed. He was mocked as a king in order that we could enter his kingdom. He was stripped naked so we could be clothed in his righteousness. Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that he became a curse for us. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that his suffering is our example. Verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. To what? To suffering you have been called. Why? Because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we, you, have been healed. Until you see suffering as a part of the Christian life, you'll be very disappointed in life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we seek to live for Christ, there will be persecution, there will be suffering that comes. Count on it. Until we see Jesus as good, we will seek to be in control of our life. Like that council who tried to control everything, even the elimination of their threats because they didn't know who Jesus was. Until we see Jesus as glorious, we will continue to live for the approval of others. We'll live in the fear of man like Pilate did. And until we see Jesus as our gracious savior, we'll easily dismiss him and his work, like the crowd did, like the soldiers did, 
They didn't see him for who he was. They didn't recognize him. That wasn't until after he died when the centurion looks at Jesus. One of these Roman soldiers looks at Jesus as truly this man was the son of God. The prophet Isaiah says of Jesus, Surely he has bore our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The question for us this morning is how will we respond to this Jesus? How will we respond to this suffering Savior? We just listed several examples of people who rejected Jesus, who saw him, who knew the truth, and still rejected him. What will you do? Will you repent this morning? Will you recognize how good God is? Will you recognize the Savior that Jesus came to be? Will you repent of your sins and trust him as your Savior? For those who have, will you forsake your sin today? Maybe you say, I'm a Christian, but man, I'm I'm not following the Lord today. Will you forsake your sin and by grace walk in faith this week? Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven. And not just that, Jesus died that you might be able to follow him in faith. His death is not only your salvation, it is your sanctification. It's not only just getting you into heaven, it's getting you into a relationship with him. It's not only about what will be one day, it's about what is today. See, eternal life is not something that happens when I die. Eternal life is something that happens now, and it lasts forever. And praise be to God for Jesus, who provides that eternal life through his own death, his resurrection for us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us today to hear your word and to walk in obedience today? We began our time with a prayer that asks for you to prepare our hearts to accept your word, to silence any voice but your own, that in hearing we would also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that you would help us to do just that. For those who need to repent today, we pray that they would come to you, come to you confessing their sins, repenting, and experience the forgiveness that only you offer. For Christians who today, who are not walking with you, God, we pray that they would repent as well, that they would forsake sin in the face of their Savior, seeing it as what it is, calling it what you call it, and by grace, walking in faith today. We can't do it on our own. We need you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.